How wonderful it is to be with you today. What a privilege it is for me to come back to Asbury, which is a special joy uh, for me. I am theologically what you probably term a square peg. I, I don't fit in anywhere. And yet this institution from the moment uh, our family moved to Kentucky has found a place for us to fit in and it's welcomed us. And I think that is just emblematic of the hospitality um, that resides here. And so I, I, I owe you a, a profound debt of gratitude uh, for that. And not to mention that my son-in-law went to seminary here. Uh, and it's been wonderful to hear these songs uh, both read and sung celebrating God and his creation. Uh, I asked them to read the 23rd Psalm because it's been the number one hit for 3,000 years on the planet. And I hadn't heard it for a little while. <laughs> so thank you. And Howard, thank you for the, your gracious introduction. And Emmanuel, I could listen to you pray all day long. And I think that's a gift from the Lord that you have. So thank you for that, that lovely prayer. Well, I was asked to speak because Arbor Day is this week, and uh, not surprising that they'd ask a guy who'd written a, a book on trees in the Bible to come and speak at a seminary about Arbor Day. Ar Arbor Day, for those of you who aren't aware, was uh, uh, started in the United States in Nebraska uh, by J. Morton Sterling in, I think, uh, about 1870, I wrote it down here, 72. Um, and it really took hold. There have been other Arbor Days, but it really took hold and has become a planet-wide uh, event. And, you know, that family, the, the, the Morton family, really took Jesus seriously. He told people to be salt and light in the world, and J. Morton Sterling's son, Joy, started Morton Salt. So they've, they've taken that more seriously, I think, than any other family. Um, I, uh, I brought some books that, are, that you may take. I brought two books um, that you can take. Uh, I brought Reforesting Faith, and there's a box down here, and you can take this one too. Uh, and I brought the latest book, Hope Always, uh, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. These are the first, they, these are the absolute first anywhere. You could get this thing on the eBay before anybody else, okay, if you want to take that. <clears throat> I brought a copy of my favorite book about trees called The Man Who Planted Trees, and I only have one copy, but somebody take that. It's like Christmas time here, right? Um, and I've, I've been here and I've spoken about uh, the book Reforesting Faith, but I'm going to broaden things a little bit. And, and, and not just talk about trees, but kind of mention birds and bees and flowers and trees and all of creation. And um, I decided not to mention stars, uh, but only to tell you that it's the one place in the Bible where I think God tipped his, his cards forward a little too far. You cannot explain his, uh, his talk about stars in the book of Job without having high-powered telescopes. So that's just a hint to you. 
And I want you to look with me through these patterns in Scripture um, as a new way of perhaps approaching uh, not only the Bible, but creation care. I have both an advantage and a disadvantage over those of you who are here who have been through a formal process of learning about the Christian faith. I was not a Christian until I was 47, and uh, a lot of things have been going on, and uh, my family and I were looking for, for answers, and I was employed as an ER doc. I was head of the emergency department, and I picked up a book in the waiting room one Sunday morning in the ER, and it said, Holy Bible on the spine, and I thought, I don't own this book, and I've never read it. I wonder what's inside. And there's no way that you can finish a Bible before your first patient comes in on a shift, and so I stole it. <laughs> and I took it home, and, and, and you're Wesleyans, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce you to real-life prevenient grace. You're familiar with that term, right? Provenient grace is that grace that God extends to people before they even know he exists. And it happened here because if you just pick this Bible up and you start reading somewhere, well, where do you start? It's a huge book. It's a collection of books. Here's where provenient grace comes in for me. My parents named me Matthew, and that's where I started, like a little narcissist. If they had named me numbers, I wouldn't be here today, okay? <clears throat> and in, in, in that early formation of me, God, I think, wanted to do something different than what's normal. Each of our experiences in coming to the Lord are both unique, and there is also a similar thread in all of our stories. But mine was done in abstraction of the church, if you will. I, I read that Bible, I, I started wanting to know about God, and I didn't go in a church. I wanted somebody to talk to about God, and on the medical staff, where I was chief of staff, a few hundred doctors, not a huge hospital, but not a tiny one either, I couldn't find a single doctor who went to church at Christmas. Okay? Um, and so I began to study on my own in isolation. And my family went, and I went through some moves and some changes. And we moved from, from our kind of doctor's lifestyle to a much more modest one. And we began to go to a church. And, uh, and the church was, oh, I don't know, probably 170 years old, little tiny wood frame church. And the pastor gave me a key to the church. And he said, there's a, there's a bunch of books in the basement. You can have anything you want or study whatever you want. And I was introduced to a theologic library that had not been updated in over a hundred years. It smelled. But you know what? The Bible hasn't been updated in, in 2,000 years. Everything I had there was wonderful. And oddly, a neighbor brought me a book. She said, I was cleaning out my attic. You believe in God. We don't. Here's, here's a book that you might be interested in, and it's a Bible. Once you, it's a King James Study Bible published by Thomas Nelson. You can go buy these today. But this one is a little unusual. It's 140 years old. 
And when I opened up to learn about plants in the Bible, I turned to the 40-page section in this book on it. If I wanted to know about trees, there's multiple full-color plates. If you get the modern version of this Bible, there's none of it. It's all been subtracted. It's missing. Uh, but God was wanting me to have a broader view of theology than the one currently held by most of the church. Um, and so I've been writing and talking about creation care, amongst other things. And I want to tell you the reaction first to reforesting faith. The first letter I got was from a man who said, I'm a forester and I'm a Christian. And I'm really glad you put these two things together. Never, I've looked for a book like this all my life. I've never found it. And I, I want to encourage you. And he went on and on. What lovely, lovely things he said to me. And then at the end of the letter he said, <clears throat> yours is the last book I will ever read. I will die this week. He was <clears throat> at the end stage of cancer. But what a blessing. And I was reminded of John Wesley's last letter encouraging someone in their ministry. Do you know who that was? It was to William Wilberforce. <clears throat> and, and I've gotten this flow of letters from people. Uh, a US congressman called me up. He said, I'm the only forester in Congress. And I've introduced, and I love your book on and on. And, and I've introduced the Trillion Tree Act, and it passed. Um, and I've had letters from people uh, uh, saying they came to faith or they came back to faith. And uh, I remember the most common reaction that I've had is really was expressed by a, a, a pastor in this area whom I think is one of the rock star pastors in this area, James Williams. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and James, you know, I just, you know, he, I would like to tell you that he drugged me out of a burning plane and gave me both of his kidneys. Um, but he would, I don't have that story, it's not real, uh, but he would, you know. And he said, Matthew, how did you see all the patterns? He said, I went to seminary, I went to the best seminary in the United States, I went to Asbury, and I didn't learn about these. How did you see them? And I've gotten that question over and over and over again. And so today, I'm going to try to teach you a little bit of a method of how to go through the Bible. Instead of handing you the fish, I want to try to teach you how to fish for yourself just a little bit and perhaps see the Bible in a, in a different way, and view these birds and bees and flowers and trees and begin to discern a pattern in them. Um, and so, uh, and, and I learned this in the secular world. I went to West Virginia University uh, as an undergraduate. It's a wonderful poison ivy league school, and, <laughs> and I got a great education there and particularly in the biology department. I was pre-med. And in the biology department, they were doing an experiment. It was a national experiment. They were trying to teach you without having to have you memorize phylums, kingdoms, and all this sort of thing in biology. Because any of you who have done that realize that you remembered about how long until the test is there, right? And they said, why don't we teach people to think about things instead? And that's part of where this process was learned from me. Again, God's provenient grace in a life. So my patented, not available in stores technique for viewing scripture. Number one, start with the premise 
that every word in Scripture is true. Don't argue with the Bible. Don't try to teach it. Let it teach you. And because I start with the premise that every word is true, if you're doing research in Scripture, um, you've got to use a Bible that hasn't altered all those words. And, you, and, and, and one of the best ways to do that is to use several Bibles and keep something like the Blue Letter Bible app open and that you can go to the Hebrew and you can go to the Greek again and again and again and begin finding out. Because I will tell you, it's disturbing what theologians have done to Bibles in the last 150 years. They didn't just subtract creation from the commentary section, they've literally subtracted it from the Bible. I'll, I, I, I give this example. If you take the following words, creation care words, that have to do with trees, the word tree, seed, leaf, branch, root, and fruit, and you count those up in a King James Bible. The King James is not perfect, but it's better than the rest, okay, when it comes to this. Um, they occur 967 times. If you do that in an ESV, 230 of those words have been subtracted. An NIV, 267. An NLT, 274. And let me give you an example, a real concrete example of that to show you how ridiculous it is in some places. Mark 11:8 is a description of Jesus and his, what's called the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This is Palm Sunday um, that we celebrate. Now, does anybody here know the word for tree in Greek? You get your tuition free for the next year. Anybody? It's dendron, okay? Dendron is the Greek word for tree. It was applied to brain cells because they look, so we have dendrites in our brain and everything. But dendron is the, it's not a mystery. It's not hard to translate or anything like that. But here's Mark 11:8 in a modern translation. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Fields translated from dendron. Does that make any sense to you? It's just one example, and it goes on and on. I'll give you some others as we go through. So in other words, you've, you, you've got to start with every word is true, but then you've got to find something that has those words. Number three. Imagine how you would write the truth um, to a world without the knowledge that you possess today. In other words, we understand uh, atoms and physics and astronomy and electromagnetic forces and genetics and so forth, but you've got to communicate to a world that doesn't know any of that. You've got to communicate to a world that believes that the basic building blocks of the world aren't atoms, but earth, wind, fire, and air. They hadn't even invented the ether yet. Uh, that's modern science, by the way, uh, which doesn't exist, actually. Um, you've got to communicate to a world that thinks that the, the fundamental building blocks of a human body are blood, yellow bile, black bile, 
and phlegm. You've got to communicate to a world that believes that you think with your organs. Um, you, you think and you process information and, and with your liver and your spleen and your intestines. In, um, in Egypt, at the time of Christ, embalming is going full blast. And they take these important organs out that they believe that you're going to need in the next world, and they embalm them in canoptic jars. What do they do with the brain? They scrape it out and throw it in the trash bag, because you don't need it. And yet the Bible clearly knows both Old Testament and New Testament that you think with your brain, like a sign on your forehead. Okay? So you have to think about how could God communicate this? He has all knowledge, but to a world that hasn't discovered it yet. They believe that mice spontaneously come into being. The Bible says like begets like. They believe that earthquakes are caused by wind in caves. And so you've got your 21st century knowledge, and you've got to go through the exercise of how would you communicate that to somebody two or 3,000 years ago. It's an interesting exercise, and I promise you it is a productive one. Number four, you've got to take note of what the world believes and knows at the time the Bible was written, but it happens to be missing from the Bible because all those things I went through, earth, wind, fire, etc., that you'll find in all the literature surrounding the era of, of when the Bible was written, and it's written over a long period of time, um, but none of it is in Scripture. Why did it go missing from Scripture? <clears throat> I'll give you an example of how off people can be uh, in, in, in science, but they get their theology right. John Wesley wrote a science book. Does anybody know what that is for free tuition? Primitive Physics. It was his best-selling book ever, and it was in continual publication for over 150 years. Talk about a bestseller. And if you read what John Wesley thought about science, you will be frightened, okay? Thank goodness we don't have to get our science right to get into heaven. But nonetheless, it gives you an idea um, of how primitive uh, even Wesley's science was compared to ours. Um, and I'll give you, um, next is, if something doesn't make sense, reverse engineer it. Um, by paying attention to number three and four. And a lot of the Bible will begin to make sense. I will, I'll give you an example. I was teaching here once, um, and, and I was uh, coming through the, the first, uh, the, two, the two creation stories, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And someone said, oh, how silly that God uh, gathered the firmaments and the waters above the firmament and the water below the firmament. And he showed me a picture out of a textbook of what some modern theologian thought that the, the ancients thought the world looked like. And it was complete silliness. But what is, remember, every word in the Bible is true. So reverse engineer. What do the plates of the earth float on top of? Our tectonic plates float on liquid. There's waters above the firmament, and there's waters below. There's liquid below. So reverse engineer. 
and things will begin to make a little bit more sense sometimes. This is important because you live in a 21st century world and you gotta communicate the gospel to 21st century people who have physics and math and that sort of thing. Um, another thing uh, is if, if all of that doesn't explain something to you in scripture or somebody you're talking to, remember that you only have a 21st century understanding of science, not a 24th century. You are as removed from what knowledge will be as John Wesley saying that if you rub sheep wool on your head, baldness will go away. <clears throat> he said it. <laughs> Number seven, always identify the alpha and the omega in the Bible. I've found this to be an extremely useful exercise. What do I mean by that? Find the first time and the last time something shows up in scripture and pay attention to it. So I'm going to give you an example after I take a drink. I'll pick something that doesn't show up a lot in the Bible. Um, a rainbow. Where does the rainbow first show up in the Bible? Genesis, right, Genesis 9. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the rainbow is God's sticky note on the sky to himself, do not turn tap on and leave. It's, it's actually just called God's bow, not a rainbow, um, in, in Genesis. But this, the, do you know the next time, uh, the last time, the omega that the rainbow shows up? It's in Revelation. It's in Revelation 4. And there it's described as a circle. Now the interesting thing is, what shape is a rainbow as seen from the sky? Any of you ever seen it from a plane? I fly all the time. It's a circle, okay? And interestingly, in, uh, in, in Revelation, it's shifted to green. They say it's green. And I think about something in here because I think about Colossians 1, 16, 17, which I will read to you. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or are held together. Some translations say in him, and some say by him. Um, it matters. I'll explain why in a moment here. The closest you can get to seeing Jesus, the cosmic glue that holds the universe together, um, uh, is to go into a dark closet. A dark room is even better. Um, there's not many dark rooms around anymore. But go into a dark closet that is completely dark and let your eyes completely adjust to it and take a roll of adhesive tape on. And if you pull that, you'll see um, uh, the surfaces exchanging subatomic particles in the green uh, as is described there, and it's the most beautiful sight. It's absolutely magnificent, but you've got to be quiet, you've got to be still, your eyes have got to be dark. Um, and, and, and that's the closest you can get. You see, Paul said in Romans that if you'd been for a walk in the woods, you were without excuse for knowing God. But the woods have expanded, and we have modern science, but, but it still works. <laughs> um, and so remember that the, 
in, in the Bible, when you begin to pick up these patterns um, in Scripture, um, that the Bible does things in sets. And so, for instance, with plants, the plant kingdom, uh, the Bible uses the, the bottom of the plant kingdom, which are flowers, to signify um, brevity. Our lives are like flowers. They're here and they're gone. The tree, on the other hand, represents the most magnificent uh, of the uh, plant kingdom, and the Bible will use that. So uh, if the Bible says cattle, it, it, it don't make your cattle work on Sunday. It means all beasts under it. Get, get what I'm, I'm talking about? And, and that could be even for sin. Jesus doesn't have to take you through all that they did wrong in Sodom. He just says, better for you not to have been in Sodom or whatever. Do you get it? It's a set there. Um, uh, and, uh, the, and, and so the other thing is as you've gotten the al alpha and you've gotten the omega, take a look around. Do a heads up and see what's followed them along. Um, and so the alpha of the rainbow, which I use, there's a boat parked there and there's all the creatures on the planet. Let's go forward to Revelation. We might expect to see all the creatures there. And as a matter of fact, um, let, me show, let me tell you what's right after the rainbow in, in Revelation in 4. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne, around about the throne, were the four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now remember what I told you about sets. The Bible's going to use the top of everything to signify everything underneath it. Um, what's the king of the carnivores on this planet? A lion, right. And so the first was a beast like a lion. What, the, what's the king of the herbivores? It's going to be an ox or a calf or something like that. Um, even a lion won't mess with a with water buffalo. Um, and the second beast was, was like a calf. Um, what is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of order now. Uh, what, what is the king of the birds? What's the king of the air? The eagle, right, and so there's an eagle there. And here is where language becomes very, very important. Modern translations will sometimes say, and the third beast had the face as a man, that's a correct translation, or like a man. But there are some translations that said had the face of a man. That's wrong. What is at the top of its kingdom that has a face like a man? Great ape. And here we have all the animals represented in heaven. Here they were in Genesis. Here they are in Revelation. People might ask you if Fido or Fifi is in heaven. I don't know about Fido or Fifi, but we certainly have the representation of all the other animals, creatures in heaven. And what do they do? Um, and they have these wings, and they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which was and is and is to come. They lead off worship. So when we were singing about all creatures of our God and King, there they are in heaven. You think they're going to leave them out of heaven? They're there. And yet, because we haven't learned these pattern recognition, um, we sometimes miss these. I brought along a magic eye book. Anybody remember this? This is the 25th anniversary. I've only opened one of these, and there's a huge King David uh, in here. Somebody can take this too. But you know, unless you know how to look this, you think it's a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of squiggles. 
And I'm afraid with creation and things around creation and scripture, we've treated it like a bunch of nonsense for 150 years, and we are not seeing the pictures, the watermarks, as it were, that God put on every page. <clears throat> About a decade ago, I want to underline this importance of words and that every word is true and not to monkey with them and not to change them. I was here at Asbury, I used to have an office um, uh, here on campus, and I was in the stacks, and I was just messing around and looking in the library, and I came across the book by the Jewish Publication Society, and oh, how I wished I'd written it down. This is why I'm not an academic. I can't footnote. Um, uh, but I came across something that was a, a, a footnoting, really, within that publication, and it was an insight, and it was a and it was the feelings of a rabbi about transcribing the Bible. And it seems that rabbis get an ice cream headache every time they have to transcribe verses like, let us make man in our image, or they have become like us. You see, they don't believe in a triune God. And so they bump over those verses and they bump over those uh, conjugations and that sort of thing. And yet, imagine if they had been like modern theologians translating Bibles and just erased it. I don't understand it, I don't like it. I'll erase the words that have to do with trees. The Bible wouldn't make as much sense to the people who came along a thousand years later and said, ah, evidence of the triune God right at the very start of Scripture. Um, Okay, so now once you've got a hold of an alpha and once you've got a hold of an omega, pull the thread and see what pops up in between. And so if you were to take creatures, because I've, I've done that, we've got Noah and his ark and all the creatures, and then we've got all the creatures in heaven represented um, uh, by that, the heads of all their phylums. Um, see what pop up, up in between. And you will find a pattern going uh, from, from Noah all the way to Revelation, or all the way to Christ in particular, of people taking care of animals. We, we, we sang about our shepherd. We heard about the Lord is my shepherd. Don't you want a good person to take care of the animals? If you're the sheep, don't you want somebody who knows what they're doing? And you will find a pattern that goes through about, the, about taking care of animals including Moses. He's a prince of Egypt, but he stops and he takes care of animals. And these are patterns that occur on purpose. And I'll give you one of my favorite. It's, uh, it's with uh, Eliezer. Uh, Abraham wants to find uh, a wife for Isaac. And so he sends Eliezer to the old country, and God is going to determine who Isaac marries here, because this is the great-great-grandma of Jesus, you know, and he wants to do this right. And Eliezer loads up these ten camels, and he takes, and he's going to find out, who does God pick here? We've seen plenty of examples in the Bible when God doesn't pick the spouse. It doesn't go well. But is it, is it going to be somebody who's beautiful? Well, yes, Rebecca's beautiful, but that's not the point. That isn't what decides it. Uh, is she pure? Is she virtuous? Yes, she's a virgin. But that's not what's going to decide it. Um, is she from a good family? Yeah, she's from Abraham's family. Um, but that's not going to be the thing that totally decides it. Is she rich? Doesn't matter. 
Eliezer came with a fortune. What is it about Rebecca that makes, makes it God's choice? Well, Eliezer finds out because he asks Rebecca for a glass of water. Good time for a pause here. And he wants to know whether Rebecca is going to not only offer him water, but whether or not this is the person in the line who cares for the creatures. And the Bible says Eliezer sat down. I think he took a nap. Why? How much water does a camel drink? At the minimum, after they've been on a journey and they'll kind of go into a hissy fit if you don't give them to about 10 gallons. He's got 10 camels with him. The reason it says he sat down and pulled out his recliner is because she had her work for her. Um, she, she, so she gives at the minimum uh, 10 and the maximum 40 gallons of water to each of these camels. And, and the weight of that is 834 pounds to 3,300 uh, 3, some pounds, over a ton, okay? That's how deeply she cares about animals. And, and as if to underline that, they take the, the, take the animals up to her house, and there's Laban. Now, Laban is, as you know, quite a character to deal with. But what is the first thing he does? He takes all those camels in, and he beds them down, and he feeds them. This is a pattern that goes through Scripture of caring for creation. Um, uh, and it goes through Moses and, of course, David and, and whatnot. And you can follow these uh, patterns through with birds, etc. Now, the reason I'm not doing birds is there's actually been a number of books on birds in the Bible, but I'm going to give you the gold standard in my view, and that's um, Dorothy Stratton Porter's uh, book on birds in the Bible. Dorothy Stratton Porter should be a hero of the faith. Um, uh, she, she was a phenomenon. She, she helped save the Limberlost Forest. Um, she was one of the most successful women, and she's the first woman to own a Hollywood studio. Um, uh, she wrote the book Freckles and Girl of the Limberlost. Freckles has been made into a movie three times. Um, you could go through with bees, etc., and flowers. Um, there's, and, and once you begin to understand these patterns, even some of the art around Christianity begins to make sense whether it's Botticelli or, or um, Leonardo da Vinci or the Van Eyck brothers, every painting of the Annunciation practically for thousands of years has one kind of flower in it. There's a reason why. Um, and it begins to make the Bible more nuanced and it begins to connect it to the earth that we walk on. Um, when you put the physical back into your theology, and when you see these patterns with birds and bees and flowers and trees, faith becomes more beautiful. It becomes more multifaceted. And some things happen like the, the person who helped me, who was the scholar, the tree scholar, double PhD, Fulbright scholar, hostile to Christianity, when he helped me with this tree book, he had questions like, is that God I'm feeling out in the woods? Yeah, it is. And he is a foaming at the mouth born again Christian today. Okay? Um, <clears throat> when the lion of Judah lays down with the lamb of God in the manger, then the viper, which represents Satan, can't harm us 
as children of God. The metaphors begin to make sense. Um, I have been astounded by the number of people who have gotten their calling to ministry outdoors. Is there anyone here who's had that situation? Can I put you on the spot? Yes, several of you have gotten that. If you subtract nature from your theology, you're telling that person that's feeling the Lord, like, like Paul said they would feel in Romans 1, and they're feeling, and in the whispering grass I hear him pass, we're going to sing that later, um, you're telling them that that's not valid, and indeed it is. Um, <clears throat> and you begin to see the patterns of the trees, the ones I love the most. You know, um, there is a tree on the first page of the Bible. The first psalm tells you to be like a tree. In the first page of the New Testament, in Jesus' family tree, there is yet another tree. Trees are the most mentioned living things in Scripture other than God and people. Um, uh, the Bible refers to itself as a tree. The, mo the biggest compliment it can give anyone is to call them a tree. Every major character in Scripture has a tree associated with them. Every major character has a tree associated with them. Has that occurred in any of your lectures? Have you discussed it? <clears throat> and every major theologic event in the Bible has a tree marking a spot, and there's a pattern to what trees wear. Um, I, once you learn these patterns, and it's not just trees, they hold, and you can kind of begin to lean back on them. Uh, as I was developing this and, and learning these patterns and everything, I said to somebody, um, you know, every major character has a tree associated with him. This guy knew his Bible really well. He said, what about Joseph? I couldn't think of it. I went and read through Genesis again. At the end of the book of Genesis, when Israel is blessing his sons, he says what? Joseph is a fruitful bough. Joseph is a tree. Same thing I did with Esther, the book of Esther. I couldn't find uh, the, the word tree, Etz, shows up, but it's a gallows, and I, I knew that wouldn't be it. And then I went back and reread Esther after I'd published the book. What's Esther's other name? Hadassah means myrtle tree. Um, and so these, these patterns in, 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 will, will hold you as you go through. Um, if you underline every sentence in the first three chapters of the Bible that has a tree in it, you will have underlined a third of the opening of the Bible, all dropped from modern teaching of theology. <clears throat> um, and you can begin to learn things. Why does Jesus, even though he's surrounded by palm trees, never mention them? Even though the, the smell of cedar wafting out from the temple as he stands in front of it, never mentioned, never mentions an oak tree. Jesus only mentions a tree from one genus. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, uh, you know, for that matter, the Bible lists uh, 35 gemstones. Jesus only mentions the one that's organic. The Bible is more exquisitely edited than you realize, 
and you'll get to see it when you dig into it like this. When you read the opening of the Bible and God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herbs yielding seed and fruit trees yielding fruit after its kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth and it was so and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after its kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after its kind and God saw that it was good. Well, the, the scientist who helped me uh, with reforesting faith read that and said, oh, angiosperms and gymnosperms, that's the way we classify all plants on the planet. And there it is on the first page of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> so what's the application of all this? Uh, 2,000 years ago, Paul described the state of the environment. What was it like 2,000 years ago? Paul said it was like a woman in labor with twins with the first one delivering breach, a woman in travail, a horrible picture. And I remember a woman in just such a condition in my medical training at George Washington University. She rolled through the door. She was brand new to this country. She didn't speak a word of English and the horror on her face, knowing she was going to die. <clears throat> she didn't. Modern medicine. <laughs> but that's how Paul describes the state of the environment 2,000 years ago. How would he describe it now? And we have to know that pollution is described in Scripture. When Adam and Le Eve fall, they tear a leaf off of a tree, not because they need food, not because they need shelter. It's the first act of environmental degradation because it was done for vanity. And then they scurry off and run and hide behind the trees when God goes, you who, where are you? And yet, um, the story begins to make more sense when you contrast that to where God starts to really get to work on this planet with Abraham. Because Abraham is the first person in the Bible to plant trees. And I want to give you just an example, again, of how modern theologians have tried to subtract um, creation from Scripture in every way they can. It goes again and again if you compare old and new, if you compare the Hebrew to the translations. Because in a modern translation, it says, then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. And in the King James, and in the Hebrew, I promise you, it says, and Abraham planted a grove of trees in Beersheba. I don't know why Philistines filled the well in. I don't know why they pulled the trees up, including out of the Bible, but they do. And pollution versus restoration is a spiritual battle. <clears throat> the American church and the church in general is driving down the broad highway of dualism. Um, and if you go into many churches today, not even a ray of light can make it in. Nothing in a church made by God. You are not called to be environmental scientists. You're called to rightly divide the word of God. Your generation needs to put its theology straight, metaphorically, theologically, and physically, you need to plant trees. Go and be oaks of righteousness. Amen?